Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. I am your host, Chadi Navhan, the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance is the large collaborative research network that combines the scientific platform at Keras with all of these academic sites and healthcare systems across the globe with one purpose, advancing research to improve the outcomes of all patients diagnosed with cancer. And today's focus is on, on urothelial and on bladder cancer. And with me, Dr. Bishoy Faltas from Wild Cornell Medical Center, who focuses his scientific research on bladder cancer and what can actually be done to stop the evolution of this disease and assure that this actually helps in translating science into improvements in outcomes. So I uh, really appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you referring this podcast to your friends and colleagues. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and write a brief review. For that, we are eternally grateful. Without further ado, Dr. Bishoy Faltas on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. <laughs> Mishoy, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Let's talk a little bit about you, who you are, where you work, and how long you've been doing this, and what got you into urothelial or bladder cancer or GU oncology in general. Thank you, Shadi, very much for having me. I'm, I'm actually very excited to be uh, talking with you today. So my name is Bishoy Faltas. I'm a medical oncologist. I'm a physician scientist at Wild Cornell Medicine, and I focus uh, my practice and my science on bladder cancer. And, uh, you know, that's a really interesting question. So I actually got into bladder cancer. I was uh, training. Uh, at, I did my fellowship at Wild Cornell Medicine. And at that time, I had uh, patients. I was starting to get it. Uh, interested in geo-oncology, and I had patients with bladder cancer uh, and who we treated with chemotherapy, and at that time, we had nothing else. So uh, the I had uh, some patients whose disease unfortunately progressed on cisplatin-based chemotherapy, uh, and then I asked my mentors at the time, um, Scott Tagawa, who's my colleague now, uh, and David Nanos, and I said, uh, well, okay, well, what do we do now? And there, there really wasn't much. There were uh, taxanes, uh, there was uh, pemetrexit, there were things where the uh, response rates was were in single digits. And I said, oh, you know, th this can't be right. Um, so I went to the lab and I trained in Mark Rubin's lab. And I said, we need to, we need to address this problem. Uh, and initially, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for research in bladder cancer because at that time, because we didn't have a lot of uh, success with clinical trials, there was this state of what I called learned helplessness, where we essentially, uh, you know, there, there was no success. So there were no funds, no interest from pharmaceutical companies, no interest from the, it's a vicious circle, no interest from uh, federal funding or, or very little. And therefore we knew very little about the disease. So I started my career by uh, studying the clonal evolution of the chemotherapy driven clonal evolution of uh, urothelial cancer, which was published as a, as a, that's, that was my postdoctoral work that was published in Nature Genetics. And I was lucky to be at the right place at the right time because, you know, not uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, 
there was all these trials with immunotherapy. And then all of a sudden, boom, within two years, we had uh, five immune checkpoint inhibitors that were showing promising results in immune checkpoint inhibit in in your in patients with uh, advanced urothelial cancer and uh, and and from that point on we we started to have more interest more funding uh, which I'm really grateful for the field starting started attracting more talent uh, and and people started paying attention we, we do need a lot more. But uh, but I'll I'll stop there and 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 I'm sure we have a lot more to talk about. Bishoy, you know it, it's fair to say that in medical school or even in residency, you usually don't get trained for lab skills. I mean, you know, you nobody's pro, even pipetting or whatever it is. You need to have like you know certain elements of skills to be successful in the lab and eventually to teach people who are going to come to your lab and be trained. Did you go through that phase? Like, did you have somebody who literally guided you through, held your hand? Like, how, how long did this take to, to feel comfortable for you to start running a lab? Years. Uh, so, so, so I did a, I did a postdoc. And, but I think, you know, before even the training, I think the key thing is for me was this, what I call a gravitational pull to science. I was just sort of drawn gravitationally pulled to science uh, for reasons that I couldn't explain myself. So you, so you have to be a little bit, you know, a little bit crazy to pursue this <laughs> at at a later stage in life if you haven't had a, you know, an early start, because as you just said, there's a, a very steep learning curve. Uh, so, 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 you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I had that kind of, <laughs> of, of extreme gravitational pull to science. And then I went to Mark, uh, and I said, Mark, I'd like to study bladder cancer. And Mark was, was very supportive. And yes, eventually he paired me with a post, a senior postdoc. And I was started with a, with a clean slate. Um, but what I sort of realized after some time, which I think is very, very important, technical skills are really important they're great but what's even a higher what's even more critical and a higher uh, or, or a more advanced skill set is how to think like a scientist how to come up with hypotheses how to test these hypotheses the logic and the uh, underlying scientific experimentation refuting hypotheses all these sorts of things so this is what i think is really important and then there are other skill sets that are uh, quite important for uh, being a principal investigator and running your research lab. And my mentor, again, Mark, and, and all my mentors were real instrumental in this. So I had great mentors, and that that certainly helped. So uh, writing, you know, using the English language and communicating at a very high level, so writing grants, articulating the hypotheses, uh, and and articulating the the, um, the the specifics and the thoughts and the ideas uh, is is very critical uh, for doing good science because that's the medium that we use to communicate with our reviewers, with our our readers, with the scientific community, and it's also what that's what I tell my postdocs now. It's a tool to sharpen your thoughts. So I can't really know what I'm thinking until I start committing pen to paper and and thinking through it deeply you know this idea of like you know 
walking by the river and trying to uh, to think of have a, a great scientific uh, eureka moment that works to a certain extent but that works after your mind has been rigorously working through a problem for me- for for several uh for, for several months sometimes years and sometimes you have you do have that eureka moment but it but you don't start there and and you see that uh, you mentioned something about funding um, f- funding wise, things are much better in opening up for bladder cancer. I mean, is the government funding it? Is more pharma? Like, how do you see who's really the main funding source? So, so there's definitely more funding and interest now than when I started, and and I'm really grateful for that. So, so initially, I was getting career advice that you can't really have a career being a a, a principal investigator who's focused on bladder cancer because simply there isn't that much funding for it. We we have more funding for it now, but no, I would say nowhere near what would match the negative impact of bladder cancer on public health. So bladder cancer is the fourth most common cancer in 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 men. Uh, it's it it there are uh, there are somewhere between seventy more than seventy thousand people with bladder cancer each year, and there are about eighteen thousand deaths. And even with the advent of immunotherapy, antibody drug conjugates, all the recent uh, fantastic development, the we we still have about more than eighteen thousand people dying from bladder cancer in the United States each year, and more than two hundred thousand people. Uh, across uh, all over the world, so it's a huge burden. And if you compare the funding dollar for dollar for the impact on public health, we're, we are nowhere near where we need to be. Uh, we have foundations uh, recently uh, that are that are starting to pitch, you know, to come in and fill in some of that gap. So, for example, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, and I'm in their scientific advisory board, Beacon. Uh, it's a fantastic organization. They just announced uh, several um, awards, and uh, they, they had some, some awards for young investigators, and and those were fantastic. And now they're they're coming up with a a, a bigger uh, career development award and also a clinical trial award uh, that that is uh, uh, more than a million dollars. So so there there are. There's more that's coming, but again, the impact of the disease and what we need is nowhere near uh, what funding for other cancers, such as pro- common cancers, such as prostate cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, and so on. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in bladder cancer research. I mean, it is very clear where, you know, I mean, uh, our podcast is on the shorter side, it's about 20 minutes. So I realize we cannot cover everything. So I thought the best way to talk about this is you know, you're immersed in bladder cancer research, maybe what would be the top things going on, whether they've happened or there are questions in progress in localized uh, bladder cancer. So the one that is resectable for listeners, the one that you still can remove surgically, um, uh, or maybe you would treat with the curative intent, although without surgery. And then what is happening in the metastatic disease, um, at least as a scientist, what is intriguing you? What really gets you excited in those two uh, two categories? So, if if you ask me, what's exciting today? I would say in the perioperative setting, uh, two things. So, uh, one is the use of circulating tumor DNA for in the perioperative setting to pick up minimal residual disease. 
uh, to also stratify patients for adjuvant therapy. Uh, and so, so these are very interesting areas for also, I'm sure, for for neoadjuvant therapy, uh, so so those are very interesting areas, and it's a it's a great use case for all the emerging uh, circulating tumor DNA technologies. Uh, we have an investigator initiated trial for platinum ineligible patients called Clonevo with uh, CDK four six inhibitors. I am personally excited about that. I think uh, this is a class of drugs that has not been fully explored in bladder cancer, despite a strong biological rationale. Uh, so, so I, I, I'm personally excited about that. In the, there's also a emerging use of immunotherapy. So we started using immunotherapy in advanced diseases, and then there was uh, some fantastic work uh, using immunotherapy in the perioperative space. Uh, and that's that's expected to. We're, we're waiting for the results of uh, some uh, trials and. That's uh, also, um, we're all very looking forward to seeing those results. And then finally, I would say uh, the potential for bladder pre preservation. So there are studies now, for example, a randomized uh, control study, SWOG1806, with uh, radiation chemotherapy plus immunotherapy versus chemoradiation. So that's for definitive treatment that would result in bladder preservation, and that's a large uh, intergroup study uh, that that could be uh, very exciting, uh, you know, to 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 see the results of, and and one that I'm involved in as well. So these are very uh, interesting developments in the perioperative for clinically localized muscle invasive bladder cancer. For the metastatic, before, so before before we go to metastatic, just a couple of questions about the locally. Uh advanced or, or resectable ones, because they're really interesting. I think I'm particularly intrigued by the one that is attempting to cure patients without surgery. And I think that for listeners who probably have not taken care of bladder cancer patients, uh, it's a major surgery. It's like a big deal, radical cystectomy. Um, so, so maybe expand just a little bit on this, because I really see that this is extremely valuable for the older patient that you just cannot spend seven hours in the OR. Yeah, so this, it, this uh, you know, I think we're heading in this direction. And uh, we're grateful in the bladder cancer research community that we're all working together. So urologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists are all represented, well represented and involved in this trial. And that's critical uh, to, to change the standard of care towards bladder preservation where surgery, you know, may may not be an option for, for some patients. Uh, and if that standard of care changes, then you would anticipate that perhaps, you know, nobody wants to have their bladder taken out. Uh, so that's definitely uh, a step in the right direction. There are other efforts. Uh, there's an alliance trial that's led by Gopa Iyer, uh, looking at bladder preservation in with a slightly different bent, uh, trying to look at exceptional responders to neoadjuvant chemotherapy who have specific molecular alterations in ERCC2 and other sensitizing alterations. Uh, and these patients would then be watched after uh, after achieving this complete pathologic response. And if they have the right alterations, then they're they're watched uh, and not going to you know to they get to keep their bladders and not going to a radical cystectomy. So we have we have a couple of trials in this uh, area. We have other trials as well. 
And, you know, the the accumulation of evidence from these trials is going to definitely be a step in the right direction, because like you said, you know, definitely uh, patients who have comorbidities, who are, uh, you know, who are not fit for surgery or not fit for adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, the, you know, will, will be the first to benefit from that. But eventually we're looking to maybe uh, have that, if it, depending obviously on the results, uh, have that um, potentially become a standard of care for uh, definitive treatment of patients with uh, muscle invasive clinically localized bladder cancer. That's amazing. So let's go to the metastatic setting. I mean, this is a disease that we can't cure and our, I think we can't cure, maybe hopefully in the future. Uh, but our goal is to prolong life, maintain quality of life and, and help patients. And um, it's, it's amazing. Um, I mean, I, I see, uh, you know, there's so many new drugs, new targets. I mean, so many things happening beyond just the immunotherapy that we talk about a lot. So maybe expand on what's happening in the metastatic disease a little bit. So the metastatic setting, again, we, we started with just chemotherapy and now we have many, many agents. So we have a very exciting class of drugs, antibody drug conjugates, uh, and we have uh, several uh, in this space. We have enfortimab vidotin and we have uh, cezetizumab gavidican, which uh, it, uh, Scott Tagawa and myself were involved in. Uh, and developing, obviously, with many others, uh, with the early development. Uh, and these are uh, FDA approved for treatment of patients with metastatic uh, urothelial cancer uh, after uh, uh, other lines of therapy, uh, mostly, although, you know, uh, EV has also an approval for uh, cisplatin-eligible patients, or Sorry, not an approval, showing promise. There was a, a very interesting study that was by Jonathan Rosenberg that was just published in JCO showing uh, re really uh, impressive results from uh, EV pembrolizumab in uh, patients who are cisplatin eligible with ad advanced uh, disease. Uh, there's also um, very interesting, so, so this particular combination of EV pembro uh, seems to be very effective, uh, and it is poised actually to take over chemotherapy as frontline therapy. Uh, and we're waiting for those results. So that they're they're in the near future. There could be a future. So is it is being compared to chemotherapy prospectively? Well, so so there there are trials that are ongoing, and and we'll get results on that. Uh, I. I yeah, so so I think those are those results are coming, and there were some earlier results uh, that were very very promising, and we're waiting for you know the uh, for for the final the updated results on that. But that so yes, the answer is it will be compared, uh, and and those could be very informative for frontline therapy, where again we could start with. Uh, uh, with uh, EV Pembro as our first line setting for for many patients, one of the main side effects of EV is the development of neuropathy over time, and uh, it's a very high uh, percentage of patients that develop neuropathy uh, after a certain number of cycles. Uh, so it's not for everyone, uh, but it but it certainly you know is something that we're very excited about. And if the efficacy continues to hold up at these very high levels, it may actually be superior to uh, cisplatin-based chemotherapy, which we've had for 30, 40 years unchallenged. Uh, our combinations of chemotherapy plus immunotherapy actually failed 
to to show superiority to chemotherapy only as as is the case in lung cancer, which is uh, you know a curious uh, a curious case of maybe difference in disease biology, maybe clinical trial design, maybe many other factors that 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 we don't have time to go into right now. But that uh, that's the case. So those those trials, uh, there there are a couple other trials that are pending, but largely those trials have not been very exciting. Um, there, are, there is FGFR3 inhibition, which is also approved, and there is a and so erdafitinib is approved, and there is a number of other uh, FGFR3 inhibitors that are currently in clinical trials. And now that we're starting to understand the biology better, so for example, work from my lab showed that upper tract urothelial carcinoma, about two thirds uh, have a luminal papillary subtype that's coordinated by FGFR3 activation, so very high percentage of FGFR3 uh, activating mutations and, and generally FGFR3 uh, alterations. And, and those may benefit, so there are currently ongoing trials where in the perioperative setting led by Montipal and, and others uh, looking at FGFR3 inhibition as uh, adjuvant setting in the as adjuvant therapy for patients with upper tract urothelial cancer. Uh, non-muscle invasive disease also. So, so I know I'm, I'm branching out to other disease states, but upper tract urothelial cancer, non-muscle invasive urothelial carcinoma, these are two disease states with uh, very high, uh, or, or let's say an over-representation of uh, FGFR3 mutations. And there's a lot of ongoing work looking at FGFR3 inhibitors in, in these disease states that is going to be very exciting. And and how are you able to detect FGFR? Um, I mean, this do you need to do NGS for that usually, or is it something that uh, I presume it's not like a single? I mean, like in, yeah. in your patient population, do you have to do NGS for that and sequencing? Yes, yes. So so these so there are two two main types of FGFR three alter activating alterations. There are FGFR three mutations, which are you know, uh, easy to detect because a lot of these are hotspot mutations like S249C, for example. Uh, and those those can be detected by either targeted panels or whole exome or whole genome. And then there are uh, another class of alterations that are that are that may be slightly more challenging to detect, and we don't fully completely understand the biology of them uh, yet, although you know there's a lot of work that has been done. So we, we have a lot of insight into these, which are the FGFR3 uh, genomic rearrangements, so fusions. So there's FGFR3 TAC3 fusions, for example. This is one of the most common partners, and those require either a specific either whole genome sequencing or RNA sequencing where we're able to detect the fusion transcript or uh, specifically design targeted assays that uh, target some of these intronic regions because a lot of these fusions are are actually in intronic regions. Uh, but those are the two main classes. And then one could obviously look at mRNA expression of FGFR3 and uh, gene set enrichment of the FGFR3 signaling downstream genes. So those are not really used uh, clinically at this point, but definitely technologically feasible uh, to look at and, and, and probably are, are good indicators of oncogenic addiction to FGFR3. So just beyond looking at the mutation or the genomic rearrangement itself, looking at the FGFR3 activation 
is really important. And in our in our work, for example, in the upper track, we see a lot of this uh, because we were uh, analyzing RNA-seq. We performed RNA-seq and analyzed RNA-seq data. We saw that a lot of uh, upper tract uh, urethral carcinomas have activation of the of the FGFR3 signaling pathway without necessarily having genomic rearrangements or uh, FGFR3 mutations. And we were able to detect those because we had RNA-seq and whole exome. So it's not like it was there and we missed it. Uh, so there are other mechanisms for FGFR3 activation uh, that are beyond the well-known mutations and, and rearrangements. This was a fascinating conversation, Bishoy. It's actually pretty funny from funny in a good way that the back when I was in training, the the trick question was, do you do gemsis or MVAC? That was like, you know, a very, that was the scientific question. And right. look, right. look where we are now. So um, really appreciate your time. It's amazing what's happening in urothelial cancer. And, you know, it's fascinating that now you even look at the upper urothelial versus lower urothelial. It's like in kidney cancer, you look at the clear cell and non-clear cell. I mean, we are really... It's good for patients. It's a good time to be a cancer uh, researcher and, and a lab scientist and an oncologist. So anything else you want to share with listeners before I let you go back to the lab? Yes. So, I, you know, I, I want to go. Actually, that's a perfect segue. So you've said, uh, and I think you're still correct, in, in many patients, we're still unable to cure, to achieve a state of cure. Uh, and what we're trying to do right now is is to if we can't cure the urothelial cancer, maybe we can turn it into a chronic disease. Uh, but the real barrier to cure and what I focus on in the lab is cancer evolution. So my laboratory is focused on studying the mechanisms of urothelial cancer evolution. What makes the cancer, because we can develop all the therapies in the world, but if the cancer is constantly mutating and changing itself, to and and it's just evolution it's a it's a it's an, a, a fundamental principle of life and unfortunately of cancer biology so that's really what we're trying to work on in the lab trying to think about how can we perhaps steer that evolution so we can stop these cancers from evolving or slow down their rate of evolution uh and how can we identify ways that we can you know keep them in uh, an evolutionary dead end or keep them restricted from trying to evolve and and continuously develop resistance so that's what we're working on stay tuned we have some interesting work coming down the pike so uh I, I was really, uh, so, and last but not least, thank you so much for having me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Bishoy. I look forward to seeing you very soon. Appreciate you coming on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you tuning in and being part of this podcast. As always, let me know how I am doing and any suggestions that you have by sending me an email at cnabhan at karisls.com. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. You learned more about the advances in bladder cancer research and what can be done to improve the outcomes of patients with cancer. Thank you. Until next time, take care.